it just became this snowball where the relationship just slowly broke down and then it got to a stage where I was just like we have to go different directions but then when I lost the client I was like shit these guys were paying me 20 grand a year and that could have been prevented it might not have been prevented like maybe maybe it was never going to work out and a part of me thinks of it is because I yeah probably didn't didn't value it enough Hello and welcome to episode 25 of Webflow, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the greatest failures behind the greatest webflowers, because success often comes after learning from many failures. Today's guest is Alan Tobin. But before I talk about Alan, I just want to quickly take a moment to acknowledge that we've reached 25 episodes. We have over 2,200 episode downloads. 24 beautiful guests, and then I did an episode, and plenty of great guests lined up for 2023, and I'm psyched for this year. But this is all down to you guys for listening. So thank you so much for listening, to sharing, sending me and my brother, podcast editor extraordinaire, supportive messages. Um, it really, it really means the world. So thank you so much. Now let's talk about Alan. Alan has had fascinating life. He studied biochemistry and immunology. At uni, he worked in labs in cities and realized he craved the outdoor living life. So then he became a surf instructor and also on the side learned WordPress, Wix, Shopify before training as a front-end developer and finding Webflow. He now lives on the west coast of Ireland and runs Happy Devflow, where he offers different development packages and retainers. We're going to be talking a lot about pricing in this episode. His failures include underpricing, overpricing, and then losing a 23k client. So, without further ado, embrace and learn from failure with episode 25 of Webflow with Alan Tobin. It's a pleasure to have you on the Webflow podcast. Hi, Jack. Thanks very much for having me. Let me start off this episode saying <laughs> congratulations on becoming a dad last month. How are you finding it? Um, yeah, it's lovely. It's time consuming, but it's just so lovely. I didn't think I'd enjoy it this much, to be honest. It's uh, My uncle said to me, when we found out we were pregnant, he just became a granddad. And he said that it it opens a tiny door in your heart that you didn't know existed. So I think that's pretty apt. Ah, oh, that's a beautiful phrase. I've never heard that. Yeah, nor did I. And he's this huge, burly former sergeant. It's the last person to expect to have something so poetic coming out of his mouth. Very beautiful phrase from the army sergeant. And are you having enough time to, to shred? I see that you're a big surfer. No, I haven't surfed. <laughs> I haven't surfed a day, a minute, a second. I've mind surfed since... But that's all good. And there there actually has been amazing waves here for the last two weeks. But um, yeah, it's all good. It'll come around again. So my partner went into labor on a Monday morning at like 2 a.m. And I surfed that day, that Sunday morning, that Sunday. So it's not too bad. Awesome. And I want to start off by talking about a tweet that I saw you write. You wrote, I'm a little bit different from most web flowers. I didn't come from a design background, so I look at things slightly differently. Can you tell anyone listening about how you look at Webflow building differently? Okay, yeah. So I think of Webflow as a development tool, more akin to something like VS Code, as opposed to a design tool more like Figma or XT. So I think of Webflow as a visual way of coding. And what I mean by that is that if you're writing code on VS Code, 
um, you're you're publishing locally, and you you're still looking at the work that you've done. You're looking at the initial HTML that is um, without any styling and how it's you know showing up in your page, and you're constantly writing, publishing locally, and using that reference to see um, whether or not you're making the right decisions or making mistakes. So I see Webflow as the reverse engineering of that, that you're seeing in real time what you're coding. You know, then sometimes you have to publish the site to see if there's uh, different things going on, um, particularly like custom code. So yeah, I, I look at it like a coding tool, a front-end development tool. And then that would kind of not feed into how I, I build sites. I, I, I build them very much um, from structure of of the HTML up as opposed to what it looks like first and then fixing it. And I'm not accusing people of doing that, but designers tend to look at things and see how they fit and then reverse engineer that. Whereas I would build it from the bottom up and build it the way I would say a dev does. Mm. But I think that's like a really important bit of insight to have, because I think most Webflowers, and this is myself included, have come to Webflow from a design like mindset and, and background, and they can't necessarily code nearly as proficiently as they can design. So would your advice be to young Webflowers that are maybe starting out or someone that's just coming across from maybe a design background to learn HTML and CSS first before jumping into Webflow or potentially doing that alongside using Webflow? What advice would you give to, to get the basics down? I wouldn't necessarily say to do it first, but I would say to do it in conjunction. I actually think Webflow is an awesome tool to learn HTML and CSS because I, I see it the same as using VS Code. So I, I think you can learn it. You can teach it and learn it through the eyes of you know someone who understands HTML or CSS. I would just say don't disregard the fundamentals of CSS when using Webflow. Make sure that you understand classes. That's basically it. The, once, once you understand classes, the whole thing is so much easier. The way I look at, at the Webflow user interface is that you've got your elements section. And to me, that's your HTML. And then on the, the other side, you've got your styling section, and that's the CSS. And so if you can understand that when you pull an element over, that it's a piece of HTML, and then you add your class and you, you style it that way and think of it like you're using VS Code or something like that, then it makes things a lot easier. That's really interesting advice. And are there any kind of crucial mistakes that you think a lot of Webflowers who aren't necessarily doing the basics well are making? Um, I think the one that I see the most of is understanding containers or not understanding containers. I know this is kind of hard to visualize because we're, we don't have any like whiteboards or anything, but a container is, is essentially a div block that has got a max width and then a margin left and right of auto. So if you pull in the container from Webflow, and give it a class of container. It already has an auto left and right, and it already has a max width. I think it's 990, something like that. It's under 1,000 pixels, but it's around 990. It might be 940, but that doesn't matter. There is a tiny piece of hidden CSS already on that div block. If you inspect the element, it's called W container. And if you don't understand that that's there, you could add a class to that and change 
the max width to let's say 1600 pixels or 1250 which a lot of people do like 1240 you know 1300 pixels so that they've got a, a more widescreen approach if you add that class container to just a div block you're going to have an element that is aligned to the left of the screen and that's the one of the biggest mistakes that i see it's either that they've aligned something to the left or they have they haven't understood that there might be how to change the container inside in the nav or something like that. So yeah, th that's where understanding CSS and HTML is important because those particular elements in Webflow already have CSS in them. We don't have control of in the UI, but we can control through custom code. Mm -hmm. Important nugget there. See, this is the type of thing that as I'm coming from a design background, you know, this is where I'm like, God, I really need to learn HTML and CSS. So thank you for dropping that nugget. We're not even 10 minutes in. And just before we started this interview, we were talking about animations as well. I guess designers might be like, woohoo, I can now do all these crazy animations. But can you explain for someone who's maybe doing loads of animations, but really not too sure how that's affecting their website performance? And maybe how can they optimize those animation to ensure that they are not going to affect performance too much yeah like webflow animate first of all i love webflow animations so much fun it's probably one of the most fun part of the tool that you can have and and use and i've definitely over animated sites i still over animate i my own personal stuff i over animate all the time because it's like it's fun but uh if you want to use animations and make sure that your site is still performing fast one of the things that I would do is I would attach the animation to a class. So page load animations, for example, you've probably noticed you've done a page load animation. It's on one particular page. You duplicate that page and now you've got twice the amount of animations. Have you ever noticed that before? Yes. Yeah, so you want to make this into a global class, right? Yeah. So what I would do there is add that particular animation to like your page wrapper class or something or um, a section, something like that. And then because it's to the class, it's, it, it happens throughout the site, it happens globally, and then you're not multiplying the, the JavaScript over and over again. So that, that would be the, the one thing to make sure that when you're doing these awesome animations, depends on the site as well, but particularly page load animations, that if you did that using um, a class instead of just to the page, it would, it definitely speeds up the site. Awesome. We've got two nuggety insights there. So <laughs> containers have auto left and right. They've already got a class attached. So just be aware that, you know, if you're dragging in a container, it's already got class attached to it in the code and that's going to affect your build. So be aware. And then the second thing is with animations, if you're going to do page loads on multiple pages, you don't need to duplicate that animation across every single page. What you can do is make it a global class. And then as a result, you're not going to be duplicating uh, that JavaScript every time. Have I got that right? Yeah, that's perfect and super concise. Awesome. Very glad <laughs> you thought so, because I thought you were giving me that face. I was laughing at how like concise your was and then listening to my own bullshit that you ramble there. So <laughs> I've only got something concise because I am listening to your answer. So thank you for giving so much technical insight in this episode. Done the technical insight. We've done the hard skill stuff. Let's talk a little bit about the soft skills 
of Webflow freelancing. And let's jump into your failures then. So tell me about failure number one, underpricing. Yeah. Um, so I suppose when you asked me these failures, I was trying to think of what has affected me the most. And yeah, I, and I think this is a thing that a lot of business people struggle with anyway. Like one of my best buddies around here is a builder and work, even though we've got complete like construction worker builder, he's got his own construction company. And we're always talking about the exact same problems, pricing, making sure we're in profit, making sure that we're not going to be losing money, making sure that, you know, and it, it usually managing clients and most of the discussions come down to pricing. So when I talk about underpricing, underpricing, I mean, uh, is that you that you are getting the amount of money that you want per hour for your job. Like, let's say you charge a thousand euros, thousand dollars, thousand whatever for a job. And if you have said that I would be happy with 500 euros a week and you get that job done in two weeks, you haven't underpriced. You've priced accordingly. If you have charged 10,000 euros and it takes you a year to do it and you get paid 800 euros a month, you have undercharged. So that's that's what I'm trying to, that, that's, that was the thing that I found really hard at the start was that I was pricing jobs and I got lots of work, but then I was not getting the amount of money that I was happy with per hour and that caused problems. Does that make mm. sense? Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, I think when you're starting out, you're trying to get a feel of the market. And also mm. there's this kind of internal monitor where you're like, you know what? I feel kind of pissed off with this client. And I and it's probably because you feel like, you know, you're you're getting the short straw. You're providing them mm. tons of value, but you're not actually getting that, you know, financial return. And so mm. I think it's completely natural to to feel like you're undercharging and, and you kind of need to keep checking in with yourself because as your skill sets improve, naturally it makes sense that you're providing more value to people and you need to adjust your prices accordingly. Okay. So that, so this is, I know I've, we're kind of moving into my second one, which was overpricing. Mm. And there, I actually think they're kind of the same thing because we'll just stick with the job. That's a thousand euros. If you're starting off and you get a job that's a thousand euros and you do it in two weeks, and you've done 40 hours a week, you know, you haven't killed yourself, you've done 80 hours over two weeks. It's not amazing money, but it's not bad. So don't, so I was getting annoyed when I was pricing something for a thousand euros, and it was taking me four weeks. So that's the, that was the thing. I, And then over time, my job, my skills got better. So I was pricing them and I was doing them in a week. So I just doubled my hourly rate. And then I could take on another client. So then I got cocky and I said, no, that should be 10 grand. And I started overpricing and I was, I wasn't getting the jobs or the client was getting pissed off. Does that make sense? So I think they're both the same thing. Underpricing because your prices would naturally, your, your hourly rate would naturally go up with your skill set. Because you're doing things quicker because you're doing things quicker, you're getting better. So the, the market still says that a, a website for a certain type of business is a certain type of price. Like the market dictates the price, but your skill set can get the job done quicker, more efficiently, and then your, your hourly rate goes up. So with when I was, what I thought was underpricing, 
<clears throat> how I did it, just to kind of go back to that, was I basically had a, a package. People were coming in. I was like, yep, you'll get this is the amount. You'll get this. I was putting uh, limits on revisions, but I wasn't putting limits on the size of the site. So I wasn't saying that this job, you're getting 15 pages or five pages or 20 pages. I was just saying you get one revision at design, one revision after development and one other revision to make sure everything is working. But like they could have got a 50 page website off me because it wasn't in the, that that limitation wasn't in the agreement. And so now I noticed that on your website, you have a one-off payment structure and then you've also got this unlimited revisions um, per month type scenario. So it seems like you've kind of, you've got both of those two different um, payment structures happening. Mm-hmm. Can you tell, talk to us about why you're doing that and how that, that came about? So uh, so with the packages, the um, fixed price packages, how that came about was for clarity, both for myself and the client. And to make things quick for me to quote, because with everybody, it was like, how do you price? What do you want? How do you, and then you'd write out, you'd spend four hours doing a proposal and then you wouldn't get the job. And that's four hours of you that you have to try and make up in a week that's only meant to be 40 hours long. That's 10% of your week. I'm, I'm pretty sure everybody has experienced that. So I just decided to price per page and how much time will it take me to do animations? How much time will it take me to do this? And kind of Average it, how much do I want to make? And with these prices that I have at the moment, it's like some jobs take me longer because of incredible animations that a designer would do or like really subtle stuff, really like intricate kind of web flow stuff. And then other pages would be super simple, like comparing an about page to a terms and conditions page. But overall, the average is that it's a price that I'm happy with. So that's why it was to save my time pricing, um, pricing jobs, and to um, be just be clear, have something clear. And yeah, so what I usually say with, to clients is that if we do multiple jobs, there's some days I'm going to win because I'm going to do it faster, but then I'm not going to, if something gets super complicated, you're not going to get another bill off me. So there's clarity and there's a fixed price. And then the retainers came from, I was doing day rates and I noticed that I'm not needed for eight hours a day, but I might be needed for eight hours over the week. I'm not needed for two days a week, but maybe next week I'm needed for two days a week. And it seems to work better that the clients seem to be happier that if they can message me on a Monday saying, let's say I'm meant to be working for them on a Thursday. Oh, can you change this? And I'm like, yeah, I'll have it done in 24 hours instead of saying, oh, I'll wait till Thursday to do it. So the the flexibility has, has been beneficial to both me and the clients. Mm. Um, what are your thoughts on like, value-based pricing? Because it seems that you have kind of done this judgment based on how many hours you're working and what the market is willing to pay. But what do you think about value-based pricing as a structure? Yeah, I'm not, uh, <clears throat> I'm not a hundred percent, I'm not an expert in it and I have tested it out ever so slightly, but I would rather price a job that I'm happy with, a price that I'm happy with, and make sure I get the job, then price something that you're completely blown out of the water and not get it. Now, let's say BMW contact me. I would still price right now what I would price for 
a shop down the road. And the way I would think about it is if BMW were happy with me, that next year when my prices go up, they're not going to bat an eyelid. And that my value for them would go up with my experience. And I, I do see it. Like I know there is a lot of chat about price based on the client, but I don't know. I haven't seen that work for me, but that doesn't mean it doesn't work for others. But that's a fascinating way of looking at your client though, because you're not judging the cost based off that project. You're judging the, the value to you that the client provides over years, kind of pricing on the on the relationship as much as, you know, just trying to be like, right, I'm going to try and charge a tenth of the value that I'm going to provide for them or trying to like work that out on a sales call. Yeah. And, and maybe that kind of goes back to the way I've set up my prices is that I'm, I'm pretty shit at sales, to be honest. So I don't have, I'm not interested in doing 10 calls a week and like, you know, throwing out that little psychological snippet have you got a BMW or how did you drive here? So, you know, then you should pay me X amount because of whatever. I'm not interested in doing that because I think that'll just take more time for me and more stress. Something it's, you know, if you're good at it, go for it, but it's not, I'm I'm not good at it. That's important to hear though, because I think, you know, a lot of the people that listen to this podcast are quite new to Webflow and they're like, how do I get 10K clients? And it's like, if you enjoy doing the work, then you don't necessarily need to be charging that much to to get to get work. You might not be able to charge that much at the start, but if you keep doing work, your skill sets will improve. Your margins will improve over time because you're actually, um, you know, doing more work in less time. And as a result, like you're doing the thing that you enjoy, and and that's kind of the motivation for for getting into Webflow. So, and, and just on just on that one, like I know you know the, the internet is full of 10k a month. I did 10k a month, and everything's about 10k. It's it's a beautiful round number it triggers people in a way and like even me when i i read you know i'm I'm just human i read stuff on twitter and people are doing it last month i was on this amount and this month i'm on that amount and it's like fuck how come i'm not doing that and you know i'm like every other business online booms and busts and months and now i've got a kid with a partner who's going on maternity leave so it's like bust 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 you know But I, I, I've done websites that have been 10K. I've done websites that have been 20K, but I don't make 10 or 20K off those websites. And that's the truth. When I do a website that, that's, that is that amount, I've got a UX designer. I've got a graphic designer. I've got a project manager. Sometimes a photographer or an illustrator or whatever is going on there and myself. So like if you do a, a 10K job or a 20K job and there's five people that need to get paid, even if you average that out, even if you 20K, you take 10% profit, people are down to like three to four, 3,000 euros each. The, yeah, the only times that I've done jobs that have been that big, it's been with a team and everybody has done well out of it. But it's like, I'm not coming home with 10K. I think there's a, a little bit of dishonesty in all of the internet world about those kind of numbers. I was actually speaking to another agency owner who talked about, you know, there's a lot of people saying, oh, yeah, we did like a 20K job, 30K job, whatever. But actually, those types of projects involve a marketing team that you've got to go to about decision making. You've got to basically, you know, do the project by committee. It's not going to be the most creative piece of work that you can do because it's kind of homogenized by all these different voices and stakeholders. The project's going to be generally way longer. So, you know, in terms of hours that you're working for that amount of money, it might even out as the same 
is doing, you know, a two week, three week project for a local shop, they they might just need a website up quickly. Yeah. And I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that it's not happening and I'm not saying people aren't doing that, but I would just put it this way. If you do 52 grand websites in a year, that's a hundred grand. You know, if you can do one every two weeks, it'd be bloody hard work, but there you go. That's, mm. <laughs> you could, if you do one 10K job a year, you only make 10 grand. That's the way I'd look at it. I don't know if we've already talked about this one. Tell me about failure number two, overpricing. Yeah, so we kind of did. So that's where the, let's use the target of 10K a month. So I, I've definitely done this. I, I got, maybe I got cocky, got a job, a couple of really good jobs. And then I was like, I'm not taking anything less. Priced a couple of old clients out and threw out some new prices to old clients coming back for new work. They didn't take it and priced stuff for new clients and it uh, jobs just didn't jobs just didn't come in and that's where i was what i was saying is that you know you can double or triple your rates but if you're doing like let's say you double your rates and you're doing one third of the work you're not making more money and uh, i'll tell you this this is what actually happened right overpriced let's say i doubled my rates and a third of the work came in so i'm down money um because and then I was hustling, marketing. I was still doing 40 hours a week. And I turned around to my partner and I was like, I was so stressed. And I was like, this is fucking bullshit. I'm making no money but working 50 hours a week. Because I was still putting in the time to find work, but I wasn't getting work. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And I was confident with the prices. I thought I was giving good value, but the market didn't want it. And Mm -hmm. um, I got bit, got bit pretty hard. So I think this is an important point to to say then that, you know, a lot of people try and get new clients that can charge more. I'm more valuable, I can charge more, and I'm going to try and get new clients. But actually, the consistency of the clients that you already had sounds like you would have been sorted. You probably would have done that work a lot quicker. Mm-hmm. No, they're not charging. You're not able to charge crazy prices, but they know you, they like you, they trust you, and they'll just keep giving you work. So is that how you feel looking back in hindsight? Yeah, 100%. I could have Instead of doubling my prices, I could have put 20% on, even 50% on. But I kind of yeah. got like, I don't want these clients anymore because they don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, I completely devalued them as as businesses and people and and how they've helped me support, helped support my life by trusting in me in the past. And um, I didn't have the other clients to replace them with. I've never had an episode where the failures are like the opposites (laughs) like yours you know you've got underpricing and then overpricing is failure number two so I feel like there might be listeners here now who are like wait how much should I charge for a website and what you're really saying is that it's a process of figuring out but don't get too cocky yeah I'm kind of thinking so like if you're charging 20 euros an hour and it takes you four hours to figure out this complex animation. Charging the client 80 euros then in a project that might be a thousand euros, that that's not a problem. I don't see that as a problem. Hmm. But if you're charging a hundred euros an hour and you take four hours to figure out that same problem and you charge them 400 bucks, I think that's a problem. You're not worth 400 euros, you're a hundred euros an hour then. But once you've learned that skill, and you've regurgitated it a couple of times to someone, well, then it's like, hey, oof, not everybody knows this trick that I know. This trick has worked at least twice because it took me four hours to make to do it. I can now do it in 
30 minutes or 15 minutes, but someone else would have to learn it in four hours or two hours, maybe if they're of a higher skill. So maybe that's when you go, oh, maybe my value is now 40 euros an hour or 30 euros an hour or whatever it is. And that's where the value goes up based on now I can take on a second project and get two projects done. Instead of it taking four weeks to do two projects, I can do it in three weeks and edge your, edge your prices up. That would be yeah. the way. Okay. If I was to try and summarize what you just said, essentially don't get cocky, cover your costs, but recognize how much value you know you're providing someone. But Realize that your skill sets are going to increase over time, which means mm -hmm. that every hour that you have now, your hourly rate is going up because you can do jobs so much quicker. But don't be a dickhead, really. <laughs> yeah, don't be a dickhead like me. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about failure number three, losing a client that was worth 23K a year. Yeah, oh, that, that makes me cry inside. Yeah, that that sucked, and that kind of goes between underpricing and overpricing, and this is the result of of doing both. Awesome client, worked with them for years, really good relationship, really friendly. There's no reason why I should have lost this client, but I thought I was undercharging. That's and then my quality of work for them started to come into question. I was leaving jobs, doing them slowly. But still, like, I, I still felt like I was doing the work. And then there was a change in management. And whenever there's a change in management, they look at everything. And they were looking at, like, what's this retainer? And um, jobs were coming in. I was doing them. Jobs were coming in. I was doing them. They felt that the jobs were not being done quick enough, maybe to the, same, to the standard that they wanted. And then it just became this snowball where ended up taking more time than I wanted it to take. And the relationship just slowly broke down. And then it got to a stage where I was just like, we, we just have to, thanks very much for the last couple of years, but we have to go different directions. Because even when the, the work being produced that I thought was of certain standard, the correct standard, they didn't see it as the correct standard, which they were probably right. And then it was like, we, we just couldn't, couldn't reconcile that. So that came from me thinking I was undercharging them. But over the course of a year, when I lost the client, I was like, fuck, I just lost 20 grand. <laughs> I'm trying to understand kind of the, the time scales as to this, you know, web flow um, pricing, like change, mm. because I imagine you felt you were underpricing at the start, then you suddenly ramped up because you were like, mm. you know what, I don't need all these clients. Mm. I can do, you know, the same amount of hours, but charge double if I lose half of them type thing. And then you were like, oh, shit, guys. Uh, yeah, I made a mistake. But you, it was kind of too late at that point. Mm. And then, and then you, you've now kind of reverted back to, you know what, I don't enjoy sales. I just want the work and to do the work and I'll get paid. I don't need massive clients. I just need consistency of work. I think everybody's like that. Everybody just wants consistency. And this is over kind of how, how long a time period? Because I'm just comparing this to like my own Webflow journey and I'm just intrigued when I'm going to get really cocky and uh, collapse. <laughs> okay, so going back to this particular client, the mistake I made with them was I didn't increase, negotiate. I didn't talk about increasing my prices year on year or even every two years. And then, but my prices for everybody else was going up. So then I was like, oh, these guys are paying me this amount and these guys are only paying me this amount. 
But then when I lost the client, I was like, shit, these guys were paying me 20 grand a year. And it could have been prevented. It might not have been prevented. Like maybe, maybe it was never going to work out. But I did lose a client that was worth 20 grand a year. And a part of me thinks of it is because I, yeah, probably didn't, didn't value it enough. It's interesting how you kind of flipped your mindset, even though your skill set has increased over the years. You're like, actually prioritize the relationship of the client rather than the price of the one-off job that you might be getting from them. Definitely. Because people don't, businesses don't want to find new people. They they want to trust someone. They want to keep you on board. Like it's not worth, like even for them, you know, it's not worth it for them to even have a back and forth email discussion about whether something is of standard or not. Like they don't mm. want that. They just want things done. They want to trust you. They essentially want you to be a part of their team, but also knowing that like, if it gets to squeaky bum time that they can cut the contract or a freelancer. So definitely yeah, nurture every single client you have. Can you, can you tell anyone that's listening a little bit about how to get retainers? Cause it sounds like that's been, you know, kind of a, a big part of your, of your freelance career. And I don't think it's a it's a topic that people talk about nearly enough. Yeah, a, a good way to get a retainer is do a. Everybody knows websites are malleable. Someone will come to you with an idea, and they want the moon and the stars. You know, they want oceans rising and falling. They want everything. And you're like, we've got them. When's your deadline? Next week. Okay, so we can't do that. So let's do what we can do in a week and build them that. And then go, okay, so we've got our landing page, contact section page, whatever. What do you want next? Products. Okay, we'll build that. And then, you know, you do that a few times. You go, hey, listen, look, I can see this business. You want this. This is what we've got. This is what I'm charging you. If you hire me for a day a month, a day a week, or a day every two weeks, I'll give you 10% off. And it'll be better value for you. I'll get things done quicker. Our, Our business will grow together uh, th- that would be the way i'd suggest and that's that's the way i've got any retainer that i have if anyone has any questions for you about this episode where can they find you or where could they um potentially message you about that um linkedin or twitter probably linkedin and twitter is the best way to go awesome i'll put those in the show notes so harder question for you to finish then what is your next failure going to be my next fail. I just had a daughter. <laughs> Awkward time to ask this question. I, guess. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. My next failure, I, I suppose, would be something with trying to rear a child. <laughs> I'm sure she's going to scream at me that she hates me someday <laughs> and that I've done nothing for her. <laughs> and then you can play her back this episode. Well, I actually yeah. predicted this. <laughs> I'll tell you what um, my next failure won't be is, um, yeah, I won't do what I did before and undervalue other, uh, yeah, just I won't get too cocky again. My next failure might be um, not keeping up with um, technology and moving with a te- with technology. That That's a very real concern. Like I'm super excited about Wiz. I'm super excited about how... Uh, Webflow logic and uh, this new direction of app building. And then, you know, this AI writing tool came out last week. It was just like, so I'm not afraid of those tools that are coming into the market, but maybe I'm afraid of of keeping up with those tools. I love this episode. Thanks so much for Alan coming on the show. And thanks so much for you to listen. 
Since Alan comes from a more technical front-end development background, it's awesome to get in the weeds about containers, classes, and optimizing your website for performance. And I really recommend following Alan on uh, Twitter at Tobin the Second to get more of that type of content. Like daily, he's posting really useful stuff. But the vast majority of this episode, we talked about pricing, and there was loads of little nuggets. So I'm just going to do a little summary for you guys. He talks about freelancing being a relationship-based business. You know, he values the client relationship over the price of the individual project, and I think this is really important to talk about because you know, if you do good work for clients, they're far more likely to want to keep working with you, and you don't need to keep getting new clients to get more work. Maybe you just need more work from the clients you already have. So you know, interesting to think about. If you do more work, you'll work quicker. You don't just earn more by putting your prices up, but by doing jobs faster. Which means you can take on more work. So interesting. If you're doing massive projects, it doesn't necessarily mean you earn more money. I think this is a common problem that I've seen, and I've spoken to other freelancers as well. When they get a massive client, the project takes way longer. There's plenty more stakeholders and people talking about, you know, what you should and shouldn't do, and it just takes forever. And you're not necessarily earning more money just because you have a bigger. Fee for the project, and then finally, as a freelancer, working with people that you like, know, and trust is valuable. It's not just about how much you get paid; it's also whether you enjoy doing that work for the client. So, little summary there. Hope that helps, and I hope this episode has been really thought-provoking for you guys. Next week, we have Brianna Nicole, the multidisciplinary creative based in the States. We're going to be talking about all sorts from. 3D design, learning Webflow, and also what her vision is for her freelancing career. Until next week, Webflailers. See you then.